Our Heavenly Father, we bow here in your presence. We thank you for this time. Father, we pray for the remainder of our service as we look into your word that you would open it up to us and expose it to us. And Father, challenge us to live by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, why don't we all be seated? I got to admit, I like that uh, that youth special. I don't know that I'm going to get that tune out of my head. <laughs> all right, now be honest. How many of you uh, set your clocks forward last night? Anybody that didn't? You're not going to say it. I almost didn't. See, Deborah's out of town, and so I'm by myself. So details like that are not my specialty. And so I just about went to bed without turning it ahead, but I managed to do it. All right, um, you know, when you read the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, there are so many questions that are raised and so much confusion that results from the study of the Bible. It really does. You have to work hard to get the confusion straightened out. One of the most confusing topics, I think, as I've read the Scriptures and as I've dealt with believers uh, as they read the Scriptures, is I'm trying to understand the relationship for the believer, the relationship between them and the Old Testament law. Now, by the law, we mean the commandments, the Old Testament commandments. Whenever you see the law in Scripture, it always refers to the Old Testament commandments. There was no civil law separate from that. Israel lived under a theocracy, and so everything that we would look at and say, well, the law of the land was really the law of God for them. It was in the Bible and the Old Testament. That was the law. So whenever we talk about it, we're basically talking about the commandments of God found in the Old Testament. Now, you know anything about them? There were more than ten of them. Um, they had dietary laws, laws regulating how they dealt with people that were passing through the land, harvest laws, laws about tithing, all kinds of things. There were so many. I've had uh, somebody tell me before that there were over 600 laws and some traditions that were added to it. That is a lot to have to try to remember, let alone to try to obey each and every day. Now, when you come to the New Testament in the time of the Pharisees, they added subpoints to the law. In other words, for example, there were laws about tithing in the Old Testament. So they began to stretch that out and enlarge it to the point where they would go into their kitchens and their herbs would be growing in their windowsills. They would pinch off a tenth of their basil or oregano or whatever their herbs were in order to give that as well. They were very meticulous. Uh, there were laws about certain animals you could and could not eat. And so a gnat was considered an unclean animal. You couldn't eat that. And so if a gnat landed in your cup of wine, you by law had to strain that gnat out and get it out of there. You could not swallow it. Um, not that you would want to, but even accidentally. <laughs> you weren't supposed to. Um, they were very meticulous about that. Even the Sabbath, uh, back in the Old Testament, the Sabbath had many regulations, and so they went on and added to that the number of steps that you could make in the course of a day on the Sabbath. You could only walk so much, and then you had to stop and just lay down, and you know that was it. You couldn't go past that because that began. They began to add to the the law. Now, it goes without saying that living in a situation like that was bondage, and that's what Paul referred to it in the New Testament. He said this was just bondage because you couldn't move, you couldn't do anything without breaking some law or tradition that had been established, and it was just misery. Now, when you come to the New Testament, and here's the confusing part, okay? 
And you get into the New Testament, the New Testament tells us, well, we're not under the law. And that added a whole other level of confusion to the whole subject. Let me show you a couple of these verses. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14, and even 15, Paul is talking and he says this. He says, For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Down in 15 he says this, What then shall we, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means, he says. But here twice, just here in these two verses, you found it stated that we're not under the law. Now that has raised a lot of questions and confusion with Christians because we don't understand what that means. Because in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments and others as well. You know, thou shalt not kill didn't change just because Jesus came. Thou shalt not commit adultery didn't change just because Jesus came. So what does it mean when it's talking about that we're not under the law? Does it apply to us? Is this permission then for Christians just to live like they want to? Well, Paul addresses that too. In Romans chapter 3, verse 31, he says this, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Well, there we go again. Now that's more confusion because he's saying, okay, you may think that I'm teaching that you should, we've nullified the law of God, that adultery isn't adultery anymore. But he said, that's not true. He said, when I say that you're not under the law, he said, we're not nullifying it, we're upholding it. Oh, man, what does that mean, you say? Well, what, what is it talking about? And so the confusion about what does it mean to not be under the law? Now, let me just, we're going to talk about this today, but let me just tell you what, the, what I think that it's talking about here, okay? Whenever Paul in the New Testament talks about not being under the law, he's talking about not being under the law as a method for living your life. In other words, it doesn't mean that it's still, the law has changed, it's still the same. But he's saying the way that you approach it and the way you deal with it and the way you live your life is different now. Since Christ has come, we're under grace, we're not under legalism. He said, so it's not the code, the written code that you live by anymore. There's something different, there's something spiritual that takes place. And he said, this is the difference between the Old Testament believer and the New Testament believer. Now, in the Bible, you know, it's referred to in the New Testament as liberty. You know, we're giving, uh, given a great deal of liberty now. Just imagine, and, and this is one of the questions for you guys to discuss tonight in your groups. Just imagine what life was like living under the law. How burdensome it was and how controlling it was. That legalism, we call it. Um, living by law is just, just too much. It was miserable. And this is why in, in the Bible it's referred to as a life of bondage. And so as we look at this subject matter today, I know that there's a lot of questions that we have. But hopefully by the time we reach the end of this today, then you're going to have some of that at least cleared up, or at least a, new, a different way of approaching it or looking at it. Let me jump in here, because we're not, as you might think, if you're visiting with us, and we're not in the book of Romans, we're actually studying in the book of James, and all of that was just to set the stage for what we're going to be talking about in the book of James, because we are in chapter 2 of James, and we're looking at verses 8 through 13. Let me read you these verses real quick, and then we'll jump into them. James is saying, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. 
But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For, it, for he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, then you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now there's a lot of things in that little passage. We're going to be looking at some of this. But the first thing that I want you to see is back here in verse 8 at the beginning of that passage. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you are doing right. Okay, you are doing right. So whatever it is that he's talking about here, I want to know what it is because he's saying that if I live my life this way, then I am doing right. And so I want to know what that is. So um, it sort of, you know, asks, begs the question, then what is the royal law? We'll be talking about this in a minute. But he's saying you're not under the law of the Old Testament for daily guidance. Instead, you are to live by the royal law. That's what he says here in verse 8. Now, let me explain what he means. If you were to, let's say over on this side, list, had a long list of, of, of a long piece of paper and listed all of the laws in the Bible, the Old Testament, and you started up there with the Ten Commandments and from then all the laws of Moses and everything else that was added to it, it would be a tremendously long list of laws. It's the Old Testament law. On this side, we have a piece of paper that has the royal law listed on it, as he's talking about here. He's saying, okay, as we compare now with Paul and James together, we're told we're not under this any longer. We're not under the Old Testament law. We are instead under the royal law. And if we live life according to the royal law, then we are doing the right thing, according to what we see here in this passage. So the question that sort of is begging for an answer is this. What is the royal law? What is it? Because that's going to be critical that we understand what that's talking about, what it is. Well, go back to verse 8 because there's a hint, at least in this verse. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in the Scripture, and then he puts in quotations, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. So there's the hint. He's talking about something that was stated in Scripture about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's what he's referring to. He is not referring to this over here, the list of Old Testament rules and regulations. So let's go find where that is. That's in Matthew because that is where the incident that took place in Matthew where Jesus is out teaching and a Pharisee comes up to him trying to trick him into saying something against a portion of the law. And so he comes up to him and he asks him in, verse, in Matthew 22, verse 36, here's what they, the Pharisee asks Jesus. He says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, he had ulterior motives for asking the question, but the question's still a good one because of the way Jesus answered. Which, out of all these lists of, of laws over here and commandments, which is the greatest? Now, Jesus didn't even hesitate. You know, you would think that a, a, a politician at least would have hesitated and thought, well, you know, and tried to, to work around. No, not didn't miss a lick. 
Because here's what he says in the next verse, the next couple of verses really, in verses 37 through 38, Matthew 22. He says this, Jesus replied, Love the Lord God, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. All right, now, now catch this, okay, guys? Don't miss this. This is important. We've, these are verses we've read over hundreds of times. And a lot of times we just don't know how it all fits together. The greatest commandment, according to Jesus himself, is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. He said it. This is the first and the greatest commandment. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that in everything that you do in your life, in the course of your day, everything that you do should reflect your love and devotion to God. It, everything you do, everything you say, in every way that you possibly can, can do it in the course of the day, you are to demonstrate how much you love the Lord. And it's not just talking about feeling because he's talking about agape love here. He's talking about uh, the demonstration or the act of it and how you live it out. But then he doesn't stop there because he goes now into verse 39. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Pharisee didn't ask for a second one, but Jesus just voluntarily gives it to him because it's very important. He said there are really two. There are two laws that override everything else. The first and the greatest and the second and the greatest. And here's the second one. That you love your neighbor as yourself. All right, what does that mean? Well, it means the same thing. That you honor people, you forgive people, you show compassion to people, you reach out to help people. You do everything that you can in the course of your day to demonstrate your love for other people. Now again, it doesn't matter if you feel the love or not because Jesus said love your, even your enemies. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the way you treat them. The whole context of this now, remember, is where he, he's, he's fussing at these people uh, in James for showing partiality. He's saying, now, you need to understand, you know, this is, he's bringing all this up because of the, of the sin of the partiality. But now, here's the last little verse there in that discourse between Jesus and the, the Pharisee in verse 40. Now watch, because this ties it all together, okay? Matthew 22:40. he says this, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, guys, don't miss this. This is a weighty verse, okay? If you go over here to the list that we've created of all of the laws, and then he even adds to it everything the prophets said and taught, the law of God, the law of Moses, and all of the prophets, everything we're listing on this sheet over here. He says, all of this hangs on these two. The royal law, the law given by Jesus himself, the one that he said is the first and the second, first greatest and second greatest of all the laws, is that you love the Lord your God and that you love other people. And on these two commandments hangs all of the rest of these. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about it. What of these commandments could you possibly pick out that would not be, in some form or fashion, a demonstration of your love and devotion to God and your love and devotion to other people. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Well, that's how I love other people. I don't steal another man's wife. Um, don't uh, use the Lord thy God's name in vain. That's how I demonstrate my love for God, by not using his name in vain. The list goes on and on. All of the laws of the Old Testament fall into one of those two supreme laws that Jesus gave. That is now the royal law. That is what he's referring to because he tells you right here in the passage in James, the royal law, in other words, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's clarified it for us what it means. That's it. The royal law is that those two commandments that Jesus spoke. All of these commandments fall into those two categories. It's like, it's like God took all the commandments of the Old Testament and bundled them together and says, here are the two you have to remember. Because if you are faithful in these two areas, then by default you're, you're obeying all the rest. Now see, this is important because we have the problem of, trying to, of choosing to try to live a legalistic life by all the rules and regulations, when Jesus made it simple and said, if you will just commit to obeying these two, these fall into place. And yeah, not all of them are going to apply to the Christian anyway. Dietary laws and laws about observing feast days and things like that. But you're not going to know that unless you're committed over here to living this way. Then everything seems to make sense and to fall into place. And he says that if you're obeying these, the royal law, he said, then you're doing the right thing. And that's what God wants. Now, here's, here's the difference, and, I, and, and this is something we need to remember. In the Old Testament, God put them out there on their own, basically. They didn't have the Spirit of God living in them to empower them. He gives them a law, or the laws, all of these commandments, and he says, obey them. And we've struggled with that for years because we think that somehow that's the way in which a man becomes righteous. God never intended that. Paul said, there's not a law given that can make you righteous. So why did God do it? Well, several reasons are found in Scripture. Number one, to, to provide some structure for society to keep everybody from going crazy. Number two would be, according to what Paul said in Galatians, is to bring you to faith because you, are, you keep trying to do it yourself and you find that you can't. And then you're ready to hear the gospel. Because until a person is ready to hear it and convinced that they can't do it, then they're never going to accept it. And so he says that God gave you the law just to show you you couldn't do it. That's kind of an odd reason, but it's nonetheless the reason that he gave. And so that's the reason why the law was given, but it was never meant to make you righteous. Now, listen to these two verses, because here's where the Spirit of God takes, now, now watch this, the Spirit of God living in you takes the royal law. And you go through the course of your day, and the Spirit of God pricks your heart and says to you, there's a situation where you need to love that person. You need to help them with finances. You need to reach out to them. You need to show compassion. You need to forgive. You need to give instruction, whatever it may be. 
The Spirit of God takes the royal law and in my life each and every day shows me ways to be obedient. And by default, I am obeying then the law of God over here. I'm not under that because I don't want a list of things I've got to do each day. But I would rather live my life in freedom under the leadership of the Spirit of God. And the Bible calls this liberty, calls it the law of, of liberty, the law of freedom, so forth. This is what it is. That the Spirit of God teaches me and shows me how to love God and love other people. Now watch. Galatians 5.18. Paul said this, But if we are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, He's going to teach you and show you ways in which to live out the royal law. He said, you're not under this mess over here. Romans 13.10, Paul said, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love the Lord and love people. You are fulfilling the law. Now, this is important because so many Christians are over here trying to, to, to govern their life with all of the rules and the regulations of the Old Testament because they think that somehow that's going to make them acceptable to God. Somehow that'll make them better. Somehow that'll make God love them more, maybe. I don't know. And God said, you know, it's really not as difficult as you're making it. I've made it as simple as I can. I died for you and set you free from this. And I gave you the Holy Spirit and I said, if you'll just love me and love people, you'll be doing fine. But yet we keep wanting to mess things up and make it more difficult than it really needs to be. This is why he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under this. You don't need the written code. As we go through everyday life, you know what we need? We need just to ask ourselves two questions every time we come up against a situation, every time we feel compelled in our heart to do something or not do something. The questions become this that govern our life. Number one, does this dishonor my God? Number two, will this dishonor somebody else? If I am patterning my life and allowing the Spirit of God to teach me to love these people around me when they're not lovable and to love my God in every way that I can possibly do in the course of a day, then I am walking in the Spirit. I am walking in obedience to the law because I'm walking according to the royal law. James says you are doing right when you do that. It's called the law of freedom, the law of liberty, and so forth. All right, now I need to move quickly. Here's the second thing in this passage I want you to see. We're going to pull this together toward the end, okay? Number two is this. When you break one command, you're guilty of them all. When you break one command, you're guilty of them all. Now watch. Verses 9 through 11, he says, But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Well, that's a downer. Good gosh. I, break, I commit one sin and I'm guilty as if I committed or, or broke them all. Yeah. Verse 11, For he who said thou shalt not commit adultery also said you should not murder. If you commit adultery, but do, but do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. All right. Why is that in there? Well, he's trying to get you to see something. That if the law of, of the Old Testament is summed up in these two commandments, 
And I think that I can get by with doing some of it, but not all of it. If I can let some people slide without being loved, or if there are some things that God wants me to do that I just don't want to do, so I'll let that slide, I'm doing pretty good. He says, no, no, no. You need to understand that when God bundles them all together, it's one, it's all or nothing. And so as Christians, we need to understand this. Because, you see, here's the problem. The, the Pharisees had the same problem, and we have it today. And this is, listen carefully, because I'll guarantee you, you're probably guilty. I know I am sometimes. We grade sin. We grade it. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. My sins aren't as bad as his. He's committing adultery. I just think about it. Oh, yeah. That's the reason Jesus said when he, what he did when he was talking to the Pharisees. He said, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But now I'm telling you that if you think about it, you've already committed it in your heart. Because you see, the Pharisees wanted to grade sin. They, they were basically saying, I'm not a sinner. Jesus comes along and he says, now, you've heard that you shouldn't commit murder. That's what the law teaches. But I'm telling you that if you hate somebody, you've already killed them in your heart. You're guilty. And so you need to understand this. And again, in a few minutes, I'll pull all this together. It'll make sense to you. But we are not to grade sin. We're not to pick and choose. When the Spirit of God says to you that, you know what? That person over there does not deserve love any more than you deserve my love, but I want you to do something for them. I want you to forgive them. I want you to reach out to them. I want you to show love to them. And you say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. And then you go on about your day, and you're in your heart thinking you're perfectly fine because, hey, you didn't kill anybody. (laughs) You know, it could have been a whole lot worse. And God says, no, you're showing favoritism. You're sinning. You are a lawbreaker because you have broken the royal law of love. He's trying to get you to see that you are bound by this law to live a certain way as a believer. Now, Guilt is guilt, okay? This is what we've got to understand. God doesn't grade sin as far as whether you're guilty or not guilty. In other words, sin is the same as far as the result of guilt. There are different consequences. If you murder somebody, the consequences are far worse, in this life anyway, than if you just hate somebody. But in the eyes of God, they're both sin, and you are guilty, you see. They have to be dealt with. Now, this whole idea of if you break one, you're guilty of all. Now, listen to this, okay? This is why it is so absolutely foolish that some people believe that they can be saved by their good works. Because according to what we're seeing here, unless you are righteous enough to obey all of the law, then you're just as guilty as the worst person you can think of. It's all or nothing. Now see, this changes 
it changes or should change at least the way you present the gospel and the way you talk to people, even what you teach. We don't want to ever give the impression or the opinion that, you know what, if you're very good, God will save you. And if you're not very good, God won't save you. Because that's somehow the, sometimes how the gospel is presented. And God says, if you're very good, you're still lost. If you're 99% good, you're still a sinner. Because in my sight, it's all or nothing. And nobody can do the all. This is what he's trying to get you to see. And even as a believer with the Holy Spirit living in you, you still can't do it all. We strive. We work to become as good and as Christ-like as we can. Understanding we were saved by grace. Thank God it's not by work. But we strive to be the best people, the best Christians we can be. And the reason for that is the third point. The third point in this is, listen carefully, that God will judge every Christian by the royal law. God's going to judge every Christian by this royal law. Look at what he says. Verses 12 through 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Talking about the royal law. These two over here. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Why? What's he talking about? Jeez, Dave, I thought you told me that once I trust Christ as my Savior, I'm never going to be judged for, for sin again. True. Not as far as your salvation. But please understand, and this is what James is harping on, okay? Please understand that as a believer, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us will stand before our Savior, not to determine whether we're going to heaven or not, because that will settle at Calvary. You were judged for your penalty of your sin at Calvary. As a Christian, you're being judged for what you have done with this royal law each and every day. Let me show you the verse. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Now, in a moment, I want to come back to 12 and 13. So I'm going to flash that back up there again in a moment. But I want to do 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what Paul said. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what, was, what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now here's what I think, because this, again, this whole concept of the judgment seat of Christ is another big question among Christians, okay? How, how is it going to be done? Why? When? I mean, it's all kind of questions. Here's my take on it, okay? It's not directly a judgment for sin in the sense that God's going to sit down in there and list all of your sins. There's a white throne judgment talked about in the Bible where every unbeliever from every age will be resurrected and brought before the throne of God to be judged as an unbeliever for their sins. 
That's not this one. The judgment seat of Christ that Paul talks about and what I think James is referring to here is, you know, the judgment, is where God takes his people and saved by the grace of God, yes, we are, but come before the God that saved us and we give an account for how we loved him or not or how we loved other people or not. Now, I don't know how that judgment's going to go, what, what it's going to be like. I, I, we get a glimpse here. Um, you know, it says that we're all going to be there and we're going to have to give an accounting. And it doesn't say anything about sin. It just says the things that we did, whether good or bad, whether they were something that God wanted or not. Now, I'm sure that sin is in this because it's hard not to. Let's go back for just a minute to the previous verses. James 2, verses 12 through 13. Now let me take you through this, okay? He's saying to you and me, this is James now, he says you need to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. You are going to stand before God and give an accounting and you will be judged based on the royal law. And God's going to ask me, Dave, how did you love me? Show me. Talk about, tell me how. And I'm going to give it my best effort, you know. And then God's going to say, well, let's talk about these. On that day, what were you thinking? On that day. Why didn't you love me then? Why didn't you show it then? How did you love other people? Man, you are a pastor. You know, you should be ranking high up there on your loving other people chart, you know? Well, what about that? What about that person? What were you thinking when you treated that person that way? When you didn't help that person when you should have? When my spirit was screaming in your ear, do something, do something, and you didn't do anything. Now remember, this is not a judgment for heaven or hell. This is just a judgment before our God. And he says here in verse 13, because judgment, talking about this judgment, without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. What's he mean? It means you're not going to be able to stand there before God and claim, wait a minute, I'm born again. I'm your child. You love me, right? All that's true. But this is something different. Because you have got to give an account to me for what you did or didn't do as far as this law is concerned. And it says it's going to be merciless. I think of the King James, the way it reads, merciless. It's going to be hard. There's some references in, in Scripture about the sadness and the, the, the grief and the tears. And people, there's some theologians that believe that some of these references are talking to, about us going through this judgment. It will be merciless. And we go through life as Christians, born-again believers, and we live our, our lives all for ourselves. We don't give a hoot about anybody else. We think somebody will do it, but not me. The Spirit of God says to us each and every day, screaming in our ears, you need to do something. You need to do something. I'll pray for them. Nothing wrong with praying. 
But James is talking in here, so you pray for somebody and you don't help them. What good is it? And so you need to understand as a believer, you're going to stand before God, yeah. And I believe that God is probably just going to ask us those questions right there. How, how did we do about loving him and loving others? This is why it says here at the end of verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. When I'm standing there that day and I'm having to give an account of myself to God, you know the thing that's going to bail me out? The mercy that I've shown. Mercy triumphs over this judgment. God is saying to you and me, if you want to stand tall that day, if you want to come up before me and hear me say, well done, my good and faithful servant, then it's going to be the mercy you show now and the love you show to me that counts on that day, the royal law. That's how you're going to be judged. Wow. Like I said, I don't know. I've often thought about this. What will that be like? I don't know. But I, I think and I see from Scripture the hints that we're giving, given. And I think that you and I need to reconsider the life that we live as believers. Understanding that, you know, just being content with being pretty good, that's not enough. I've still got to stand there before him, and I don't want to be just pretty good. And so we need to be serious about our faith. We need to be serious about listening to God on a daily basis. We need to be serious about how we live in this life as a believer because we're going we're gonna to stand there. I want to challenge you to live according to the royal law. It's easier to live this way than to live legalistically. If you think that the things that you do good in life are what make you special, you're mistaken. And so start focusing in on listening to the Spirit of God as you go about your everyday life and make a commitment that, Lord, I'm going to love you in every way I can think of, every opportunity I have. And I'm going to love other people as best I can with the leadership of your spirit helping me to do that. I'm going to love people in different ways. Because when I stand before you, I want that to be the thing that I'm judged for. I don't want to be judged for, for not being a merciful person. You and I need to take it seriously. Because believe me, God does. He really does. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, let me read you this one verse, okay? It just goes along with what we've been talking about. It's in Romans 3.20. Paul makes this statement. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's what I told you earlier. He said nobody's going to be declared righteous in God's sight because they kept the law. Because you've got to keep it all or nothing. Nobody can do that. He said, but think of it this way. The law was given to, give, to make you conscious of sin. Now this is what it means. That as you sit there this morning, you're conscious of your sin. God's pointing that out to you. He's saying you've done this, you've done that, you've done this. 
Now, if you are not a Christian and you have doubts about what's going to happen to you in the future, then he's saying, then what are you going to do about this? And you've got to make a decision. The Bible says that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for you. And he paid for your sin. All of the things that you're guilty of, God the Father laid on that sacrifice and he paid for it. And the guilt is gone. I will never stand at the white throne judgment before God to be judged as a lost sinner because God says you have been removed from that. That's grace. If you want that, then you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You believe that what the Bible says that he did on the cross, that's enough. That's enough. And you trust him. It's that simple. The other judgment, where as Christians we're going to be there, it's not heaven or hell, but it's going to be a tough one. But right now, make a commitment to be different. So that when you stand there before God, you're going to be judged. And the mercy, he says, mercy will triumph over it. You want to be victorious? Then be merciful. Love the Lord and love people. Obey the royal law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for liberty and freedom in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have removed us from the written code as a way of life. Lord, it was so enslaving. But, Father, you have made it simple because the Spirit of God will lead us. And when we are led by the Spirit, we are not under all of that cumbersome law. Father, we thank you for that. But now, Father, we realize that we can't sit back. We can't sit back. Because even though we are declared righteous in your sight, Lord, you want us to be practically righteous in the way that we live life. And someday we'll have to give an account for that. But, Lord, you have made that easy, too, in that you've narrowed it down to two commandments. If we just will obey those, and allow the Spirit of God to lead us and guide us in every situation. And Father, one day we will stand before you and we will hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And Father, that's what we want to hear. We thank you, we praise you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.